We have spent several weeks talking about the farewell discourse. Sometimes it's called the upper room discourse. The farewell discourse was delivered in the context of a Passover celebration. This is the night before Jesus would be crucified. Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover. Jesus is saying farewell. He's leaving and he's telling his disciples that he's leaving and they won't be coming with him. In the immediacy of this moment, the disciples are troubled by that news, and so Jesus is comforting them. Uh, He's trying to encourage them. And in this discourse, the chapters we've spent several weeks looking at and we will continue to look at over the next several weeks, Jesus gives two of his famous I am statements. There's seven of them in the Gospel of John, and it's a key part of how John has structured his gospel. In this gospel, the gospel of John, you will find seven signs and seven I am statements. Some people take this seven a step further and say that there are seven discourses, but you kind of have to be funny with the numbers and how you chop those discourses up. There are clearly seven signs and seven I am statements. Here's the signs. Jesus turns water to wine. He heals an official son. He heals a man who was born blind. He feeds 5,000 people, men, plus women and children. He walks on the water, John 6. That's the only sign that was private. The crowds or the public did not see that. John 9, he heals a blind man. John 11, he raises Lazarus. Seven signs, seven miracles performed in the gospel of John. Not all that Jesus performed, but the seven that John mentions. And there are seven I am statements. John 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Chapter 7, I'm the light of the world. John 10, I'm the door of the sheep and I'm the good shepherd. John 11, the resurrection and the life. Recently, John 14, we talked about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And this morning in John 15, we hear Jesus say that he is the true vine. I am the true vine. If you and I are going to make sense of that seventh I am statement, We've got to just get square on one little Old Testament theme, Old Testament idea that would be running behind what Jesus is saying here, and it's this. The Old Testament regularly described Israel as a vine. Happens multiple times in the Old Testament. I've given you a few verses you can look up on your own, Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, but regularly in the Old Testament, God talks about Israel, his people, And he says, you are a vine that I planted. And I planted you so that you would grow up and bear fruit. But almost always when this imagery is used, what God is saying to his people through the prophets, through the psalmist is, I planted you, this vine, to bear fruit. You've grown up, but you have not borne fruit. And the result of that lack of fruit is God's judgment on Israel. That's in the background of the Jewish mind when Jesus, a Jew, speaking to a group of Jewish men says on the night before he's crucified, I am the true vine. Immediately, the men in that room and you and I ought to think, wait a minute, Israel was God's vine. Israel didn't bear fruit. Now Jesus is claiming to be the true vine. That brings us to the big idea of this passage. It's very simple. Jesus is the true vine, and his disciples are the branches. Jesus is the true vine, and disciples 
are the branches. Essentially what Jesus is saying to these people is, to these men and to you and me, he's the true Israel. I'm the true vine. Israel was a vine. Jesus is saying, I'm the true Israel. Have you ever wondered why in the providence of God, the Lord arranged the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth? We just sang about it. He arranged the circumstances in such a way that almost immediately after he was born, Jesus had to be taken to Egypt for safety only so that later God could call Jesus out of Egypt and bring him back to the promised land. And the scriptures would say that it was a fulfillment of scripture when that happened. Have you ever wondered about Jesus being baptized? Why Jesus shows up in the Jordan River with John the Baptist and John is baptizing sinners. They're confessing their sins. They're being plunged under the waters. They're saying, we deserve judgment and death. And Jesus says, I need to be baptized. And John says, you have got to be kidding me. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, it needs to be done this way to fulfill all righteousness. And he passes through these waters of judgment. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, as soon as he's baptized, spends 40 days and 40 nights being tempted and tested in the wilderness? In all of these things, Jesus is reliving Israel's history. And where Israel failed, Jesus is obedient. Just like Israel takes refuge in Egypt and is called back to the promised land, baby Jesus taken to Egypt for safety so that he can be called back to the promised land. Just like Israel passes through the the waters of the Red Sea, these waters of judgment on Egypt, Jesus passes through the Jordan River, these waters of judgment in baptism. Just like Israel spends 40 years being tempted and tested in the wilderness, failing miserably time and time and time again, Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights being tempted and tested in the wilderness, and he is perfectly obedient to his Father. Why are all these things happening in the life of Jesus? They're happening because he's the true Israel. He is the true vine. Now, This image of a vine is an agricultural metaphor, and I think it's worth just being honest about the fact that in Odessa, Texas, we live in a place that is hostile to agriculture. Agriculture is hard for us. It makes me think of the movie The Martian. You remember this movie The Martian? Matt Damon gets left on the, uh, not the moon, on Mars. He gets left on Mars, and he tries to grow potatoes on Mars. That's kind of what it's like growing anything in Odessa kind of like growing potatoes on Mars. We don't get rain. We need more rain. My family was out of town this summer the two days it rained this year. I don't think I've seen rain in Odessa in over a year. It's extremely hot in the summer. We deal with extreme temperatures, and we have lots of wind. It's not good for growing things. About the only thing we grow are pump jacks and wind turbines. Every other church I've pastored, I've had farmers in my church. In Kentucky, I had tobacco farmers and soybean farmers. In Oklahoma, I had wheat farmers, kingfishers called the buckle of the wheat belt. In Odessa, we just don't grow much. We've got to really stop and think about an agricultural metaphor. And I think it's something that we can make sense of, even though we don't do a lot of growing here. It's really not complicated. Jesus says that he's like a vine. He's like a vine. 
And he says, if you're my disciples, you're like branches that are connected to the vine. You're not the main part of the plant, but you're connected to the main part of the plant. And branches produce fruit. When they're connected to the vine and everything's working the way that it ought to be working, the branches produce fruit. And Jesus here talks about uh, vines and branches producing fruit. He talks about pruning. He talks about dead branches, branches that don't bear fruit. And what do you do with those branches? All of these things taken from the world of agriculture to describe two ways that you can respond to Jesus. Right? This passage roughly breaks into two parts. The first part of the passage is the actual metaphor, the vine and the branches and the pruning and the fruit and all that stuff. I know this isn't where the paragraph break is, but the next section of verses is verse 7 to 17. It's where Jesus explains the metaphor. All we want to do this morning is say, what are these two ways that you can respond to Jesus? And then we want to drill down on what it means to truly abide in Jesus. So here's the, the first truth, the first idea we're going to start with. There's two ways, only two ways to respond to Jesus. Number one, you can abide in Jesus. If you abide in Jesus, you will be pruned and you'll bear fruit. That's one option. Option two, how do you respond to Jesus? Don't abide. Jesus acknowledges in this parable. He acknowledges in this discourse there are some who are not going to abide, and he very clearly says they'll be thrown away and burned. Two ways that you and I can respond to Jesus. Let's talk about this word abide. What does it mean to abide? Throughout the gospel of John, we are called to believe in Jesus. That's why we've titled this series, Believe. John uses that word more than any other New Testament author. Believe, believe, believe. It's an active expression of faith in Jesus. What in the world does it mean to believe in Jesus? In part, it means to abide in Jesus. Uh, look at this familiar verse, John 20, 30 to 31. We've read it almost every week. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Not just seven signs, many other signs. But these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In this gospel, you read about all sorts of people who quote-unquote believe. It's used in a number of different contexts for a number of different people. Some of them end up murdering Jesus in the end, and you walk away saying, okay, but what does it really mean to believe? And in this passage, what John is telling us and what Jesus is telling us is believing in Jesus, really believing in Jesus means abiding. The word literally means to dwell or to live. It's what you would say about your home. I live there. I dwell there. That's the word. Dwelling in Jesus. Living in Jesus. It can be translated as stay, like you would say to your dog. Sit, stay. Don't move. Don't leave that spot. Stay in Jesus. It could be translated continue. In Jesus. It could be translated live in an ongoing way where you're connected to Jesus. That's what it means to abide. Essentially, we're talking about the old doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. 
It's the doctrine that those who truly believe in Jesus will persevere in faith and they will believe all the way to the end. They'll endure, they'll persevere, they'll abide in Jesus. Notice that the text says, if you abide in Jesus, you will bear fruit. Look at verse 2, John 15, 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, and the reason he prunes it is so that it may bear more fruit. Look at verse 4. If you're not connected to the vine, you cannot bear fruit. That makes sense. If you cut a a branch off of a plant, you don't expect it to continue producing fruit. It only produces fruit when it's connected to the plant, connected to the vine. Look what we read in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You can turn to the commentaries and you can ask this question, what does it actually mean to bear fruit? I found three common answers this week. What does it mean to bear fruit? Some say it's obeying commands. That's mentioned in this passage. I've obeyed the Father, you should obey me. Some say it's actually making disciples. I think that's referenced at the end of this passage where Jesus talks about you'll bear fruit and your fruit will abide. I think he's talking about making disciples. Uh, Some say it's loving one another, also mentioned in this passage. This is my command that you love one another. What does it mean to bear fruit? How about all of that? Yes, to all of it. That's bearing fruit. It's being a person who obeys God's commands. Not perfectly. None of us do that. We all fall short. But someone connected to the vine, a branch connected to the vine, is a person who obeys God's commands. They're involved in making disciples. They find their place in their role in fulfilling the Great Commission. They love each other, other believers. That's what it means to bear fruit. If you're abiding in Jesus, according to what Jesus says here, you bear this kind of fruit. You also expect to be pruned. Verse 2. Every branch that does not bear fruit is taken away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. What does it mean for the vine dresser to prune this plant? A lot of people focus on a passage like Hebrews 12 and they talk about God's discipline. God disciplines his children. He disciplines those he loves. It's not because he's angry with them. It's actually because he loves them. That could be part of the pruning. Certainly fits with the image of pruning being sort of a painful thing, a violent thing, a a discipline type thing. But I think this pruning doesn't have to be a negative thing. I think it could be as simple as Philippians 2, where Paul says that God continues to work in his people so that they will and work for his good pleasure. God continues to work in us so that we abide and that we want to bear fruit. I think it could be something positive, like Galatians 5, the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the result of the Spirit being at work in our lives. The Spirit we just read about in John 14, the helper, the comforter, the counselor, the advocate. He's the reason that we bear fruit. So you abide in Jesus, you bear fruit, you expect to be pruned. Branches bear fruit when they're connected to the vine. Disciples 
bear fruit when they're connected to Jesus. That's one way to respond. Here's the other way. Don't abide in Jesus. Don't abide in him. Don't bear any fruit. Don't remain in him. Don't continue in him. Don't live in him. Who would we include in that category? We would certainly include people who don't claim to believe in Jesus. They don't claim to follow Jesus. You look at their lives, they show absolutely no signs of being born again. Those people would not be abiding in Jesus. I think in the context, we might also think about somebody like Judas. Somebody who spent a lot of time with Jesus. He walked around and listened to Jesus. He did things with Jesus. He did things for Jesus. On an outward level, he looked like a disciple, but in the end, he did not persevere. He did not abide. He did not remain, and he was cut off. He was separated from Jesus. I think what Jesus is saying here pretty clearly is those are the only two ways you can respond to him. You can abide in the vine or you cannot abide in the vine. I think as Americans, we're awfully confused about what it means to respond to Jesus. I think one of the reasons we're so confused about what it means to respond to Jesus is that we don't actually listen to the Bible as much as we'd like to think we listen to the Bible. We listen to sort of what is in the cultural Christian air floating all around us. We listen to what's on quote-unquote Christian radio. We read what's sold at the Christian bookstore. We don't always just listen to the Bible itself. I think two categories of people are pretty easy for us to make sense of. I'll put some highly skilled artwork on the screen for you here. On the left... There are people you know who do not identify as a Christian. They do not claim to follow Jesus. If you ask them, are you a Christian? They would say, no, I am not a Christian. You look at their life and you say, well, that makes sense because I don't see any fruit, right? You don't have a desire to obey God's commands. You're not involved in making disciples. You don't show love to other believers. That makes sense. You're not abiding. We're pretty clear on that person. On the other hand, hopefully this would be some of us. There's people who do identify as Christians. If you ask them, are you a follower of Jesus? They say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And you look at their life, and none of us are perfect. None of us are sinless. But you say, that's a person who has a desire, a heart to obey God's commands. They're they're involved in a local church where they're making disciples. They're, They're doing their best to grow in loving other people. That's pretty obvious. We say that person's abiding in Jesus. Where we get really confused, and we're confused because we don't listen to Jesus himself, is this person in the middle. This person who does identify as a follower of Jesus. If you ask them, are you a Christian? They say, absolutely, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. But you look at their life and you say, yeah, I don't see a lot of fruit. I mean, you say that you are, but it doesn't seem like you have a heart to obey God's commands. It doesn't seem like you're involved in any way, shape, or form in making disciples or a church that's engaging in this task of making disciples. I don't see where you love other believers in a sacrificial way. As Americans, we get really confused, and as if it was ours to draw in the first place, we end up drawing the line of salvation in the wrong place. 
We talked about this not too long ago as a church when we looked at the parable of the soils. Four types of soils described. Only one bears fruit. We tend to be satisfied with the two in the middle that pop up at least for a little while even though they don't bear fruit. The point of that parable is the only soil, the only fruit that's any good or plant that's any good is the one that actually bears fruit. Jesus says here, look, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can abide in me, remain in me. You have life, you bear fruit, or you can't, you don't, you refuse. And the branches that don't bear fruit are cut away, not in a pruning way, but they're cut away and they're thrown into the fire. They're discarded. They're separated from me. This is more than abstract theological who's in, who's out stuff. This is more than let's have a doctrinal debate about this and that hypothetical situation. This is real life stuff that has eternal consequences. Just this week, the phone rang in the office. Lady was on the other end of the phone. She wanted to speak with one of the pastors. Angie passed her through to me. She attends church at another church here in town. She's from here. I don't know her. I've never met her. Don't know her name. She said, I'm worried. I need to talk to a pastor. I said, have you talked to your pastor? She said, I have, but I'm looking for some more advice. And I said, well, what's going on? She said, here's the deal. When I was three, I made a profession of faith. I was baptized uh, at my church, not three, third, third grade. When I was in third grade, I made this profession of faith and I trusted in Jesus and I was baptized. And over the years, I've been loosely connected to my church. She didn't even tell me what church it was. I didn't ask. She said, I look at my life and I really am not sure all these years later that I'm a Christian. I've been reading the New Testament. I I just don't see that my life matches up with what the life of a Christian should look like. And I said, so have you talked to your pastor about it? She said, I have. I said, well, what did he say? And she said, he told me, don't worry. Don't worry. Why did he say that? He told me, don't worry, because I got baptized when I was in third grade and I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I said, so why are you worried? She said, because I don't, I don't think that was real. I don't think that was genuine. I don't look like somebody who's following Jesus, and I'm worried that I'm not saved. And I said to this woman, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that you called me this week and that I'm preaching on this passage this week. And I said, I'll be honest with you. I don't want you to be scared. I want you to have gospel hope. But right now, with what you're telling me, I think you ought to be a little bit worried. Because Jesus, in the parable of the vine, or this statement of I am the vine, he seems to describe two ways to respond to him. You can abide in him or not. There doesn't seem to be a place for branches that don't bear fruit. Those branches are removed. They're cut away. They're burned. They're thrown into the fire. I said it sounds an awful lot like what James says when James talks about faith without works being dead faith. Can that faith save you? James says, absolutely, that kind of quote-unquote faith can't save you. It sounds an awful lot like what the Apostle Paul tells the, the church in Rome when he talks about the obedience of faith, that these two things, real genuine faith in Jesus results in obedience in your life. 
Now, I want to be clear with you like I was clear with this woman on the phone. I want to be clear about what I'm not saying. I am not, 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 not telling you that fruit and obedience and making disciples and loving other people is the thing that will get you into heaven someday. It's not. It's not. Believing in Jesus is what gets you into heaven. And if you listen to what Jesus himself says, truly believing in Jesus results in fruit in your life. There's evidence that your faith is real. That's what Jesus says in verse 8. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. The fruit proves that you really are a disciple. It proves that you're connected to the vine. It's not the thing that gets you in on the last day. It's the evidence that you really were in the whole time. The fruit does not connect the branch to the vine. The fruit does not connect the branch to the vine. When the branch is connected to the vine, it bears fruit. When it's not connected, it's dead. Now, some of you just need to wrestle with that. You just need to step back and look at your life and say, am I abiding or not? The question really isn't what happened in third grade or what happened 10 years ago or what happened one year ago. The question is, am I abiding today? Am I connected to the vine today? Am I bearing fruit today? Or am I not? Those of you who are not don't need to worry and be fearful. You just need to believe in Jesus. That's why John wrote this book. It's that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. Believing connects you to the vine, and that's what you need to do. Many of you, in fact, I would say probably most of you are connected to the vine. And I want you to see what Jesus says here as what are the results of abiding in him? What's the, the result of being connected to the vine? We'll move through these quickly. Number one, abiding in Jesus results in eternal life. Eternal life. That's what we saw in John 20. When you believe in Jesus, you have life in his name. How do you know you're believing, you're truly believing? Well, you abide and you have eternal life when you're connected to the vine. Number two, abiding in Jesus brings glory to the Father. We just read verse eight that says, my Father is glorified in this when you bear much fruit, right? This is the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work for the salvation of his people. The Father loves us when we're sinners. The Son dies for us while we're sinners. The Spirit gives us life and connects us to the vine while we're lost. And the result is that abiding in the Son, God the Son, by the power of God the Holy Spirit in our lives brings glory to God the Father, the Trinity at work for our salvation and for his glory. Thirdly, abiding in Jesus leads to answered prayer. Answered prayer. You see this in verse 7 and verse 16. It's not the name it, claim it stuff that you hear all the time. It's not a if you believe hard enough, it'll happen type stuff. We've talked about it the last two weeks. When you're abiding in Jesus, and Jesus says here, his word is abiding in us, and you ask whatever it is you want when the word of Jesus is abiding in you and shaping your desires, Jesus answers those prayers. 
Number four, abiding in Jesus produces genuine joy, real joy. Look how Jesus describes it in verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. When this light bulb goes off in your life and your heart, something will change in your life. When you begin to realize that abiding in Jesus is the way to find maximum joy in life, it changes the way you think about following Jesus. It moves from I need to do this or I have to do this to I want to do this. Jesus is not asking you to give up all the good stuff and be miserable following him. He's actually offering you something far greater than that. He says, I'll give you my joy. You give up all that mess in the world, I'll give you my joy and your joy will be full. Not a little bit of joy, not a day's worth of joy. Your joy for eternity will be full. Number five, abiding in Jesus makes us Jesus' friends. Jesus' friends. Verse 13, greater love is no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. He's talking about the disciples. He's talking about his people. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Verse 15, I no longer call you servants. The servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Those are the results of abiding in Jesus. Life, glorifying God, answered prayer, real joy, and being Jesus' friend. Don't forget the context. Don't forget what's going on around this passage. It's the night before Jesus is crucified. He is hours from the cross. And don't forget what we just read in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this than someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus is about to do that. He's about to lay down his life for his friends. He's about to die on the cross. There's a reminder here in the context and in verse 13 that everything Jesus says here about abiding in him is built on the foundation of the cross. That would be a construction metaphor. If you want to stick with agriculture, you'd say it like this. Our abiding in Jesus is rooted in the cross. Our ability to abide, to be connected to the vine, to bear fruit, all of that is rooted in what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Look, the Lord's Supper is about the cross. It's about what God has done to save us. The Lord's Supper is not about you and I sitting in this room, eating a cracker and drinking juice and saying, God, look at all of the great fruit in my life. It's not about us coming into God's presence and saying, God, would you look at all the great things that you get when you get me? When you and I take the Lord's Supper, it's actually about acknowledging John 15, verse 5, where Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's our mindset when we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus, apart from you, I can't do anything. I can't believe. I can't abide. I can't bear fruit. I can't have eternal life. I can't love others. I can't make disciples. I can't worship Apart from you, I can do 
nothing. And in the Lord's Supper, as we acknowledge our lack of ability, we also acknowledge that Jesus did everything that needed to be done on our behalf. We're celebrating the fact that God in his love, while we were still sinners, sent Jesus to die for us, and then he sent another helper, another counselor, another advocate who teaches us the truth about Jesus, who opens our eyes when we're spiritually blind, who gives us a new heart when our hearts are spiritually dead. That's the Lord's Supper. It's coming into God's presence and saying, God, apart from you, I can do nothing. You have done everything that needed to be done in your love for me that was free, in the death of Jesus in my place, and in the ongoing work of your spirit in my life.